Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast today on the pod with the end of the fall session of the BC Legislature. Premier David Eaton joins us to discuss his government's controversial and transformative housing reform. Plus, free fall pollster David Coletto joins us to discuss BC's divided opposition as BC Conservatives surge and BC United remains stuck at the starting line should we expect this spring election. And we talked to Burnaby residents who weren't sold on the SFU gondola idea. And why are BC salmon farms linked to an explosive spike in wild fish deaths? That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Welcome back to the show. Well, recently, the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Council voted to approve the plan to put a gondola on the mountain uh, between Simon Fraser University and Production Way University Skytrain Station. Now, SFU is hoping the gondola uh, could be in place for 2027. Now, the next step for the project includes finding funding, as the gondola alone is expected to cost more than 210 million dollars. Now, the project is part of TransLink's 10-year plan, which also includes an estimated 170. Uh, kilometers of rapid transit in the region. Now, getting up and down to SFU can be a real slog, and the proposed Burnaby Mountain Gondola is being sold in some quarters as a fun solution to the traffic and transit challenges in that area, but it's also concerning for residents who live in that area as well. And joining me now is Christine Cunningham, member of the No Gondola Group. Christine, thank you for joining us. Hello, Jazz. Nice to be back on your show. Yeah, Thank you. Good, good to have you back. It's been a little while, and I thought it was important that we talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. for, for our audience, walk me through some of the concern you and your uh, and your neighbours have in regards to a gondola operating in and around your neighbourhood. Well, I think the main concerns is that we feel it's a waste of taxpayers' money, actually, uh, because there are only in, in 2022 there was only... 2,270 round trips on the 145 bus route, and that is the route that would be replaced by a gondola. Um, the, uh, besides uh, the concern about it not really being uh, a good use of transportation dollars, mm-hmm. we're also concerned about it going through the two conservation areas, and one of the conservation areas has a protective covenant over it that prohibits this type of infrastructure. Um, and then we have uh, other, you know, other concerns as well uh, that are, yeah, a variety of other concerns. Would these, would the gondola itself, would the, would it, would it be traveling directly above your homes? Uh, it doesn't go directly above my home, but it does go uh, directly above the homes of uh, some other uh, people in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, it goes, um, you know, it would be. Going over the community where people uh, walk and go to school and the kids go to daycare and people go to the little store to do their shopping and people walk their dogs. So, yes, it would be going over, um, not necessarily over uh, all the homes, but it would be going over the community and people would be very aware of it. Mm-hmm. Now, to my understanding, and, and uh, perhaps you think differently here, according to TransLink, Mm-hmm. Uh, the trip itself right now by bus um, is about 15 to 45 minutes. Uh, with a gondola, it would be seven minutes. And the gondola could transport as many as 3,000 people per hour. And if it's right next to the SkyTrain station, uh, that would, one would argue, make it more efficient. People get off the SkyTrain, jump in the gondola, and you're up right up the top of the mountain um, in about seven minutes. Uh, would that mm-hmm. not be efficient? It's not the efficient way of moving people and not having well, to rely that, on more buses? That might be efficient, but we're saying it's not necessary because they're talking about uh, 3,000 people per hour uh, going up the 140, well, what, 
was the going up the gondola route, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, actual evidence is that there was uh, 2,270 people per day, on average, uh, going up on that route. So th- our question is, where's the demand? Like, where where are they going to find these 3,000? And actually, they say then it could be increased to 4,000. So where are they going to find all these people to take the gondola? Since right now, it's only, uh, you know... T- uh, just over to seventy per day, right? And that's based on the buses that go up, uh, the main bus that goes up to SFU. Yes. Oh, well, there's uh, four main buses that go up to SFU, and two go up on the uh, north uh, west side of the mountain, going up the Burnaby Mountain Parkway, and two buses go up Gillardy Way. So this is really proposed to. Um, replace the two buses that go up Gallardi Way, mm-hmm. the 145 and the 143. With, with the growth of the university, one expects it to continue to grow. Uh, you have mm-hmm. a neighborhood, I think it's university, uh, that uh, has um, you know continues to grow as well. Would there not be greater demand? If not, some would argue even um, it may spur even faster, faster growth in that area with the gondola there. Well, university has been... Um, you know, there for uh, over a decade. And, uh, you know, the ridership is what it is. So the biggest ridership that they ever had on the 145 route was Mm -hmm. in 2019, Mm pre-pandemic. And at that time they had uh, 3,000, let me see. Uh, Roughly about 3,000, though, is what you're saying. uh, 3,650 round trips per day, Mm -hmm. per day. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, moving yeah. forward, though, uh, the, they're still looking for funding, and I know uh, Transic has a has a massive wish list, uh, and part of that they're going cap in hand to the federal government, and, and I've maintained, you know, fill your boots, go ahead and do that. But the minute they say yes to Vancouver, they have to say yes to Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, uh, and every city that has a transit system. So I think the government's going to be somewhat hesitant, the federal government, in providing direct dollars uh, on this issue. Sometimes they do so on a project by project basis. Uh, how how um, confident are you that this is going to move forward at this point? Uh, well, I, I'm not uh, I'm not super confident because I think the basic business case is flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's been a proper examination of ridership. You know, you mentioned a moment ago about how long it would take to get to the university. I think, I think it was um, actually they were talking about a six-minute saving and travel time. Mm-hmm. The uh, this is not a, a long route. The 145 bus route is not that long. So if you, you could save possibly six minutes of travel time on that route, but then the, the terminus will, will be at university, and people will have to then walk or take a shuttle to get to their classes over at the university. So they'll add time there. And then by canceling the 143 route that goes from Berquitlam up to SFU, they're going to require people from the Tri-Cities to go further on their route to get to Production Way to take the gondola up the mountain. Okay. And and they will also, if they're trying to induce people to come from the R5 route or the 144, that will uh, possibly also take those people longer to get to a gondola. So the whole business on timing is questionable. Christine, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
First, let's focus on the present political landscape as a provincial election is scheduled for October of 2024, so just under a year away. Well, Abacus Data conducted a survey of 1,000 British Columbians from November 22nd uh, to the 28th, and the findings are causing a bit of a political earthquake here in British Columbia. According to the survey, the BCNDP has the support of 44% of committed voters, a four-point drop from its uh, 2020 2020 election. Uh, The BC Conservatives are second with 26%, um, followed by the official opposition, BC United, at 17%. Now, compared with the 2020 provincial election, the BC Conservatives are led by John Rustad, and get this, are up 24 points, while BC United, which of course is previously known as the BC Liberal Party, is down 17 points. The BC Greens are at 9%, down 6 points since the election. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this survey is David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Research. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, I saw a bit of your data uh, yesterday, uh, which you had tweeted out, uh, a hint of uh, what would be released today. i got to tell you, you, you set off a bit of a political earthquake here in B.C. Well, I think any time you see such, such stark numbers, and, and I'll just say that, you know, the top-line numbers when we ask people how they vote if there was a provincial election, we've got, you know, the B.C. NDP at 44, the Conservatives at 26, and BC United at 17. And I think it's that BC United and number that, that really stands out, right, with the official opposition, the, BC, the former BC Liberals. Um, they're down 17 points from where they were in the last provincial election, and you've got the Conservatives who leapfrogged them. And we, we're not the first survey to show this, but I think it, it's another data point that, that validates and confirms both previous polling and the results of, of those by-elections a few months ago and shows that, uh, you know, Kevin Falcon's in, in deep trouble. John Rustad is, is making some, some headway, but that David Eby is, is in the driver's seat right now with, with a big province-wide lead. What's causing this uh, in your mind? Well, I think uh, on the one hand, I think, you know, far more people or at least more people say they approve of the job that, that David Eby and his government is doing than disapprove. And, you know, when I look at what's going on at the national level or I look at different uh, other provinces, that's, that's actually kind of rare these days to have a provincial government or any government in which more people approve or disapprove. So I think that helps explain how, uh, why the, the NDP is holding their support and has only seen a small drop since the provincial election. What's going on with the opposition parties, I think, is far more complicated to, to answer. I, I think on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that you know, the, the rebranding effort uh, that the B.C. Liberals undertook to change their name, um, you know, Kevin Falcon's first kind of uh, time as leader hasn't gone well. But I also think to some extent this could be what's going on with the B.C. Conservatives is, is somewhat of a halo effect, perhaps, um, from, from the popularity and, and sort of the progress that the federal Conservatives have made. Um, I think it's a mix of both, right? So, uh, you know, it's hard to exactly say what, what's going on, but I, I think the, the, the B.C. Conservatives, the, the, you know, John being turfed from the B.C. United Caucus and him becoming leader of the party created a bit of a spark that, that has put a lot of pressure on, on, on Kevin Falcon and his party and, and find themselves in, in some real trouble. Now, how much of this is a halo effect from Pierre Polyev's uh, economic message, inflation message, where there may be a lot of voters who don't feel po- follow politics very closely, 
uh, and just sort of glom onto that message. And you have numbers for Mr. Rustad and the BC Conservatives that are relatively high. Is it, how much of that do you think plays a role in this? I think there's some. I think there's some effect. Uh, you know, we see, we see. I think, you know, in Ontario where I'm, where I live, in, and we've done lots of polling here. I think the strength of the federal conservative brand has helped Doug Ford, the the conservative premier here in Ontario. I think it's having the same effect in BC. But I also, you know, what, what we also know is that inflation often hurts incumbent government, and there at least right now doesn't appear to be a lot of evidence that that David Eby and his government is really is really being harmed by the fact that, that the cost of living is the number one issue in British Columbia. Housing's a top issue. And yet that government's popularity has held pretty steady. So I think it's a mix of that. I, I think it's not hurting the incumbents, but it's probably giving some lift to the BC Conservatives who might be able to, to, to be a little bit more edgy and, um, and, and, and clear in terms of what it would promise to do to help alleviate people's cost of living concerns. Yeah, they've, they've almost, uh, from what I can see, you know, glommed on to more of a, a, a people's party messages, br- bringing up issues of social conservatism, uh, SOGI in schools, uh, challenging mm. um, uh, the issue of climate change, advocating certainly the elimination of the carbon tax, uh, the firing of our provincial health officer over uh, vaccines and the conversation around vaccines and healthcare workers. Uh, it's almost like it's not even a conservative message. It's more of a people's party message. Um, moving forward, though, can this message sustain itself? Some would say, look, the, the, there's economic frustration out there. I think you referred to it on the federal level as inflationitis. Can this mm-hmm. anger and frustration sustain itself? Because our election is scheduled for October of 2024 at this particular point. Does that anger and frustration with the public sustain itself and continue? Well, I think it can. I, you know, I, I always try to think of what, what would alleviate that pressure. Um, and I think the, the answer is either, you know, inflation stays low or gets close to, to 2 to 1%. Interest rates need to start to come down. People need to feel that there's hope, right, and that, that the worst is behind them. But I, I've seen data that suggests people don't believe that yet, that the perception is that, that things are still going to be tough for, for some time. So that suggests that between now and that next provincial election just under a year from now, that, that we are probably going to be in an environment where people are feeling anxious about the state of the world, um, very feeling vulnerable about their standard of living, about you know, the, the security of their, their housing, and their ability to kind of make do. And so I think we, you know, BC is headed towards uh, an election environment where these are the issues that are going to probably dominate. And that, to your point, is is a risk for the for the NDP, although they, they don't appear to be um, being hurt by it yet, but also a real opportunity for, for the BC Conservatives, who you, who you pointed to have really taken this kind of populist, um, you know, uh, aggressive stand that, that is finding some appeal among, among some British Columbians. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to David Coletto, founder, chair, and CEO of Abacus Data. Uh, his organization uh, conducted a survey of 1,000 British Columbians between November 22nd and 28th. Uh, and it's causing a bit of a political stir, actually a big political stir, because of the numbers. The BC NDP has the support of 44% of committed voters. That's a four-point drop from the 2020 election. With those numbers, uh, they're still guaranteed a majority government. And a reminder to all of you listening out there, Premier David Eby will be joining us here in studio at 4 o'clock. 
Now, what's really interesting of this poll, about this poll, is that the BC Conservatives are second with 26%, followed by the official opposition, BC United, at 17%. Now, since the last election, that's a 24% a 24-point jump, by the way, for the BC Conservatives. So 26% right now, a 24-point jump, and BC United is down 17 points uh, from that 2020 um, uh, election. The BC Greens are at 9%, down 6 points since the 2020 election. Now, uh, David, uh, let's get to some of the uh, core issues when it comes to concerns people have. The number one issue, based on your survey, for people uh, is the is the fact that people are concerned about rising costs on live on, on when it comes to living standards and inflation. Uh, inflation and affordability is the number one issue. When you have issues with housing as well, there seems to be a younger generation quite interested in the conservative message, something you probably wouldn't have seen 10 or 15 years ago. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, if, if you had told me, Jazz, you know, like seven, eight months ago that the federal conservative party would have a double-digit lead among those under 30 and that the B.C. conservatives would be more popular among younger British Columbians than older ones, I would have said, that's, that's crazy, you know, do another survey, the data's, the data's wrong. But we have seen consistently uh, at the federal level that, that, that Pierre Polyev is finding an audience among younger voters and that I think in B.C., that that might be happening as well. And why is that, right? When you look mm-hmm. at those two cohorts, those, they under 40, um, the, the under 30 and then the 30 to 44-year-olds, they are facing um, an economic environment. And it's, it's, it's primarily about housing and insecurity about housing, whether they are renters now and want to own and how hard that is in their mind that that's never going to happen, whether they're renters and, okay, they've given up on owning a home, but now they're worried that, if they need a larger place or they've got to move or they, uh, there's a risk of being evicted that they're not going to be able to afford that next apartment or that next house if they're renting is a real ang- It's creating anger. It's really creating a deep resentment. And I think, again, conservative politicians uh, at all levels are, are feeling that and are tapping into that, that anxiety and offering up at least, you know, whether there's, you can argue whether their policy are even there or whether the policies are going to make any difference, they're tapping into that, that, that frustration, right? And to, to some that anger and it's being channeled into kind of a populist uh, reaction and Canada and BC aren't alone. We're seeing that in the United States where, you know, young people who overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden three years ago are signaling in the polling that they're looking at the Republicans now because they've given up on, on you know, the Democrats' ability to deliver some of these things for them. It's so when people are feeling anxious mm-hmm. uh, and, and very worried, and younger people, I think, are in the worst kind of place right now, they're looking for, for a complete change, of course. And I don't want to go as far as to say they want to throw a whole wrench in the system, but at its core, one would argue that argument says the game is either fixed or culturally or generationally we're getting the wrong end of the stick here. Unlike you boomers and probably some of you Gen Xers, we've played by the rules and we're not getting any further ahead and it's not working. So something's wrong. So there is a, not a desperation, but certainly I can see the anger that is there. Yeah. And you know, I've noticed in a lot of the research we're doing that, that the, the, the prevailing mindset of people generally, but particularly of young people is one of scarcity, right? The things that perhaps in the past, most of us were able to take for granted is not the case anymore. So rising food prices, rising housing prices, energy prices on the rise, and increasing, because we're likely headed into a recession, insecurity about their jobs and their ability to, to make an income um, creates 
what some have described as zero-sum thinking. You described it, right? So that if I'm losing, it means somebody else is winning, and I've got to fight for, for, for whatever scraps are left. And so it's creating a real, I think, a lot of friction in, in the, the electorate that often plays itself out in our politics. And, you know, for a long time, Canada thought, Canadians thought we were immune to these kind of forces, that we couldn't see rising resistance to immigration. We're seeing that. We just released a survey last week that showed, you know, close to 70% of Canadians think immigration targets the federal government has set are too high, and it doubled in the course of eight months. Mm-hmm. All of this is related to that sense of scarcity. And so it, it creates volatile political behavior, and I think BC is going to be a, a really interesting case for the rest of the country because you've got a provincial election coming up in, in just under a year. Well, uh, I enjoyed reading your survey. I was expecting a quiet Sunday. Then my phone blew up after you <laughs> tweeted out uh, your early data, and more of your data is available now at Abacus Data uh, in regards to the survey you did here uh, in British Columbia. David, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a, have a good evening. Welcome back to the show. Well, just over a year ago, David Eby was sworn in as, as uh, BC's 37th Premier while surrounded by family, friends and colleagues in a ceremony held in the Musqueam Community Centre. Since then, Premier Eby and his government have introduced a flurry of programs uh, and legislation that has shown he's not afraid to take action. And during this fall session, his government passed 19 pieces of legislation, including five different housing bills, which impacts many parts of our housing market, from BC Hydro to the rental market to drug decriminalization to new immigrants given a pathway to having their credentials recognized. Much has been discussed and debated during Mr. Eby's uh, administration. Now, with the fall legislation uh, legislative session coming to a close last week, the Premier joins us in studio to discuss the many pieces of legislation introduced and what's ahead. Premier B, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, good to see um, you. Um, it's good to see you as well. Uh, last time I think we see each other face-to-face is usually in the legislature, so it's good to see you here in a different type of... It's great to be in the studio. Yeah, good to be in the studio. So let's begin with housing. Uh, the housing legislation introduced by the NDP is set to reshape residential neighbourhoods by allowing up to six units on a single-family lot, increase density near transit hubs, overhaul the way municipalities collect fees from developers. Uh, your plan uh, radically alters the fundamental power balance between municipalities and and the province. Do you worry that the province has gone too far in that relationship that has been there for literally decades, and this turns to a certain degree things upside down to a certain degree? Do you worry about that fundamental power balance being shaken up too far? Well, I think, you know, for most uh, people in British Columbia, um, their anxiety is around whether or not they're going to be able to find a place to live, Mm -hmm. whether or not their family members are going to be able to find a place to live. They're not lying awake about the relationship between the provinces and cities and and the distribution of authorities. Um, And so that concern about can we find a decent place to live uh, Mm -hmm. is really core to why I got into politics in the first place, started in the downtown east side related to housing and homelessness in that neighborhood. And housing has been really central to why I'm interested in politics, the injustice around people not being able to find a decent place to live. So for us, for me and for our government, uh, we're going to take a big swing. And we're going at all of the things. We're going at short-term rentals. We're going Mm -hmm. at properties that are empty and people are using them as investments through the speculation and vacancy tax. Uh, We're going at money laundering in the property market. We had our first unexplained wealth order uh, filed in court last week. We introduced that legislation at the beginning of my term as premier. And uh, we need to bring on a significant amount of new homes for people and homes that they can actually afford. So I'm, I'm watching in my community, certainly an older single family neighborhood. Uh, you can see the families are not there. 
um, and because they can't afford to be. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of duplexes, triplexes, people being able to break up a single family home and uh, live in one unit while family members live in others or they rent them out or sell off uh, the other units and give people a chance to get into these neighborhoods with great schools and good infrastructure, it's essential. And so the the idea of do nothing, which is actually being advocated as far as the votes go in the legislature by the other political parties, or tinker around the edges, or um, take some big swings. It, it's just not, to me, it's not really an option. We have to take some big swings here. When you say big swings, I mean, you're, you're comfortable in making that generational, you, you want to make generational change. I want people to have access to a decent place to live that they can actually afford. And one of the major barriers to that is that the kind of housing that people can actually afford uh, can't get built for a variety of rules and uh, and structures that prevent it from getting done. Now, mayors that represent communities that do build that missing middle, uh, Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward's been on this program. Brenda Locke, to my understanding, was in Victoria last week raising some of these concerns. And last week, uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, and I were talking, taking calls from um, listeners. And we got a call out of the blue from uh, Richard Stewart, the mayor of Coquitlam. Uh, we had asked him about the legislation. He called himself on his own. Uh, take a listen to what he had to say. This is incredibly impactful legislation. I'm not certain that this is the right measures. It will actually, in our community, it will actually slow things down in the short term, simply because it takes a while to start to rezone all of the stuff that they want pre-zoned. Those communities that are doing what has to be done and doing the heavy lifting really ought to have been uh, exempted, I think, from this. And I'd urge the province to contemplate the two sides. Now, that is uh, Mr. Stewart's comments in regards to the impact of the legislation. Here's another comment from him, because those in his community say because of the way financing has been set up, um, they also may not be able to build a community centre. I want to listen to listen to him once again in regards to bonus densities. That's one of our big challenges right now is that uh, communities have been using the bonus density provisions that were introduced. I was on the Minister's Affordable Housing Committee back in the 90s when bonus densities was was introduced. It allows us to have high density around transit stations, but have those developments fund, have the landowner effectively funding the the higher density by encouraging the support of rec centres and the fire halls that are needed, the the amenities that are needed to support really high-density housing around transit stations. And that's an enormous risk right now that we could lose all of the funding, effectively, that puts pipes in the ground and and makes these neighbourhoods work. Uh, you say you want to take big swings. What would you say to Mayor Stewart, who is incredibly concerned that he is calling open line calling shows, expressing his frustration? Yeah, I... There are mayors uh, in this province that are really enthusiastic and supportive of the changes. There are mayors that have uh, legitimate questions, Mayor Stewart's uh, certainly in that camp. Uh, The idea that government would introduce uh, changes like this without providing provisions that allow for growth to pay for itself, uh, uh, pay for the pipes, as he says, the fire halls, uh, uh, community centres and so on, is, is not correct. Um, we uh, one of the housing bills that was introduced was the municipal financing uh, bill. That what it does though is it changes the dynamic. So currently, the way things work is you want to build something. You, it's zoned for whatever one story. Mm-hmm. You want to build a twenty-story tower. You go down to city hall. You say I'd like to do this. Well, then you enter into a negotiation. And uh, the negotiation can be indeterminate (laughs) in how long it goes on. You and the city in a standoff about what you think you can do, what you can't do in terms of building these homes. Uh, All that time costs money. 
uh, the, you don't know until you actually work out your deal with the city what you're actually going to have to pay. So you don't know what the final cost of the units is going to be. Uh, all this time and additional cost is totally unnecessary. We think that it can be all moved to the front. People can know in advance if they buy a lot what they're allowed to build, what the cost charges will be to build that infrastructure. It doesn't have to be uh, negotiated individually, site by site. All the city staff that do that work, all of the individual decisions that are made to allow or not allow uh, housing to go ahead have accumulated to the point where it's incredibly challenging to build the housing we need. We have massive population growth. We have people who can't afford to live uh, in the cities where they work, uh, and we can't do it that way anymore. So it is a shift, but it's not getting rid of the ability to get the money for those things that are needed in community. It's a shift to doing it up front rather than over a period of years in some cases. So I, we understand the spirit of, of the legislation, uh, and there certainly is a demand for, for more housing. But do you worry, for based on your aspirations, where you hope this legislation goes, to the reality, which is we still need more pipes in the ground, we have a shortage of construction workers, and uh, at its core, this is going to take a very long time if, if this is to come to any sort of fruition, That what kind of types of buildings that we want to see built. I mean, is there a jurisdiction you can point to right now that you think has done this successfully? Um, so the the shifts that were made here in British Columbia and the laws that were introduced are based on a number of different jurisdictions around the world. New Zealand is one uh, where they allowed uh, multi-units on a, on a single family lot. Uh, California uh, is another example. Uh, Massachusetts uh, has done work like this. Um, I think that we are probably um, the most comprehensive in addressing all of these issues compared with any of them. And you're right. Uh, in terms of actually getting this stuff built, we need uh, the people that have the skills to get that done. And so anywhere we can find a way to take some of that pressure off, so you don't need to do a full rezoning with an architect and and uh, do all this work to in order to build more than one unit on a single family lot, address that. Can we do standardized drawings, standardized buildings that comply with the building code that the municipality will say, we're going to approve those. Uh, we know they comply uh, and, uh, and you can go through the process faster. Uh, and then you don't have to hire those uh, professionals to be able to do that. Uh, that's another way. Uh, looking at modular building uh, and uh, allowing increased uh, modular construction. We've provided support mm -hmm. to a number of modular uh, building producers here in British Columbia that produce those homes that are assembled essentially in a factory and then put together on site uh, rather than built on site, which helps deal with some of the skilled labor. So all those pieces are part of it. Uh, housing is a wicked knot, which is what I, I think your questions are really getting at. Uh, you can solve one piece and then another piece moves. Uh, we're trying to be as comprehensive as possible in our response. Uh, housing at its core is also an issue in and around affordability, which is uh, certainly based on polling looks like the number one issue for people. Now, recently, Energy Minister Josie Osborne uh, uh, mistakenly dropped a memo uh, at the legislature. The memo suggests that... Uh, uh, <laughs> I've got a new Christmas present uh, idea for her. Yeah. <laughs> it's a briefcase with a handcuff on it. <laughs> <laughs> but she had, of course, at that memo promised something big and shiny for the budget uh, to deal with the issues in and around affordability measures. One of them was that perhaps um, a carbon tax revenue could be used to freeze BC Hydro bills. Uh, would you consider something like that? And can we expect something to address the issues in and around concern over carbon tax for the next budget? Yeah, you know, in, uh, in some <laughs> ways, uh, uh, frustrating that that happened. In other ways, um, uh, a good reminder about, uh, about, I hope for people, about what our government's working on. You know, the, the memos were about two key things. One is about, um, can we identify uh, improved affordability initiatives for people that are struggling? And the other about, can we, how do we increase our electricity supply to take advantage of some of these major economic opportunities that are out there for us in the province? 
Um, I know there have been documents revealed under previous governments that showed different <laughs> different issues. Yeah. These are the kinds of things like, yeah, this is what we're working on. So uh, in terms of uh, hydro, um, we did do a hydro uh, credit on bills, provided support to people struggling with electricity, both businesses and individuals, um, shortly after I was sworn in. Um, it was uh, successful in providing uh, some cost support for people. Um, but those kind of one-off things, um, it's hard for people to count on that. And so finding a way to bring down hydro bills is absolutely something that we're looking at. Uh, these regular payments that people have with government, whether it's car insurance where we, we reduced rates by 20% or whether it's tolls where we got rid of them or whether it's MSP payments that they had to make where we got rid of them or it's childcare costs where they face them every month or hydro bills, finding ways to bring those costs down in a predictable way uh, is really what we're focusing on. So yes, it's, it's absolutely something that we're looking at. I've got many more questions, but uh, Tim French, our technical producer, had to play Fleetwood Mac, I so I have to ask the question, what have you got against Fleetwood Mac for me? <laughs> nothing against the band. I, uh, I just, I've tried to like them. I don't, I, uh, I don't know what to say. I just, in the spirit of full transparency, I acknowledged it uh, when I was asked about it. And, uh, and now for the rest of my life, people will play Fleetwood Mac when I enter the room. <laughs> you know they will. You know they will. Uh, so let's touch, uh, just we were talking about affordability before the commercial break. I want to touch on just the carbon tax before we go. Uh, 14.31 cents liter, as you know, uh, there's an exemption in Atlantic Canada uh, by the Trudeau government. And of course, on cue, the Premier's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario uh, uh, want to see an exemption for natural gas uh, in their provinces. Um you know, we can talk about the specifics of a BC plan versus a federal plan. The core issue is, some have said, it's not changing behavior. Yes, the economists have said at its core, put a price on carbon, it's the right thing to do. But is it changing behavior in an era where we have huge affordability challenges and crises? Uh, what would you like to see done with the carbon tax? Because I know we have our own at 14.31 cents, but some have said, look, it's not doing what we had hoped it would have done when it was first introduced. And I had former Environment Minister Mary Polak here not too long ago. She even says it's not worked out the way it should have worked out. Is there perhaps a different way to tackle this issue through technology rather than carbon tax going up every single year? Mm. Yeah, great, great question, Joss. So um, one of the things that we did look at was, uh, uh, you know, Alberta and Manitoba uh, have taken their um, uh, carbon tax off of their uh, gasoline. I think it was 10 cents in Alberta. Manitoba is just starting. What we saw in Alberta, they took that 10 cent a litre tax off and uh, shortly after Mr. Kenny did that, the price went back up by 10 cents. The gas companies just picked up that 10 cents. And so what you've done is you've gutted your ability to fund transit and other uh, pieces of public infrastructure, bring emissions down, but uh, you've also handed 10 cents a litre over to the gas companies. So we're not looking in that direction, but what we're looking at is how do we support people with affordability um, through the carbon tax? And so we've uh, got the climate action tax credit for people, uh, looking at how we can expand that uh, and support people with affordability. But but beyond that, uh, it, it is working. You know, we have the fastest rate of adoption of electric cars uh, in North America, one and two with California, we go back and forth. Uh, about 20%, 22% of the vehicles sold in BC are electric. Um, it's a significant savings for people who are able to do that. And uh, that's just one example. Our emissions, despite our population growing quite dramatically, our emissions are down uh, since 2017. Um, and our air is cleaner um, as a result. And so there are a bunch of reasons why we would want to do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, for economic growth and the future of the province and maintaining climate leadership in a time when we see record wildfires, atmospheric rivers, 
floods, heat domes. Uh, this is the way the world is going. And so British Columbia being an early adopter uh, gives us a lot of economic advantages as well. The big economic proposals that are coming to our province right now are either uh, net zero by 2030 uh, or out of the gate zero or carbon negative, like hydrogen proposals that displace uh, fossil fuels in, in uh, heavy trucking, for example. That's where our economic opportunities are, critical minerals in mines uh, mm -hmm. and so on. So it's, it's a difficult issue. Uh, I'm having the debate with a conservative party that doesn't believe in human-caused climate change uh, and their, cl their climate plan is nothing. Uh, with the BC Liberal uh, Party, the BCUPs, uh, saying that they're going to abandon this carbon tax that they said was the answer for so long because they're under pressure from the Conservatives, they're pandering to these climate deniers. Uh, we think there's a different path, and uh, and uh, we are being thoughtful about it. We understand people are facing affordability challenges, but the big uh, piece in our province is supporting people without supporting, for example, home heating oil, which is what the federal government did. Mm -hmm. Now, one could argue, like, how achievable is that climate action plan when you still have more LNG projects potentially being proposed, mining, forestry? Um, it still takes a lot of energy, uh, and there's going to be tremendous amount of demand for all of that. How achievable is the province's climate action plan when we've got all these demands already uh, for a lot of these industries? Yeah, I, there, there are people in our legislature and, and in our communities that say, look, we, we can't uh, have any uh, LNG, we can't have any uh, fossil fuel um, production in the province, uh, we can't have resource development uh, and, uh, and be environmentally responsible, and then there are others who say, let her rip. Uh, and uh, in between uh, those two is, uh, is where we are, which is uh, new LNG plants need to be net zero by 2030. Uh, and uh, Cedar LNG uh, is meeting that target. This is a First Nations uh, LNG proposal mm -hmm. uh, outside of Terrace, uh, and um, as just one example. Uh, but also, uh, we have major uh, economic development that's associated with zero carbon. Uh, I think we have 19 hydrogen proposals, hydrogen generation proposals across the province, mm -hmm. uh, several uh, critical minerals uh, development projects. Uh, so we can do both, um, but we do need to be responsible about it. And and interestingly, in developing the technologies that we are for these projects, uh, we're a leader in technology export, for example, around hydrogen and uh, and other uh, clean energy systems. So uh, this is the way the world is going, and I, BC will be in a very good position, I think. Uh, and uh, and we got to make sure we're looking after people, though. And uh, and the good news is, Jess, uh, in BC, uh, people earn uh, the highest wages in Canada currently. And we had the highest private sector job growth uh, last month uh, across the country. Uh, so those are working. But that day-to-day -day cost uh, piece that people are feeling, especially going to the holiday season, is, uh, is front of mind for all of us. Who You mentioned BC United. You've mentioned BC Conservatives. Who do you view as the opposition? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the anxiety I have is in the growth of the Conservative Party. Here you have a party that's anti-science, anti-vaccine. The biggest threat they see uh, to kids is teachers and school librarians. Uh, they deny that uh, human-caused climate change is real or that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. And they bring the worst of the American culture wars uh, to British Columbia. This is something that's ripped apart the United States. You saw the guy driving his tractor down the highway, bashing into police cars. This is, this is the product of the Conservative Party ideology in British Columbia. And, uh, and, and it is alarming to me that, that they are seeing the kind of poll results they are. And so I feel very anxious about that. Um, the, uh, the opposition in the legislature is the uh, BCUP party. Uh, led by Kevin Falcon. Uh, we have very different perspectives about the direction the province should be going, uh, but but we're at least able to agree on some basic facts about uh, science and the world. 
Uh, and um, and so it's it's challenging because I think I don't want I don't want to get too into the punditry of it all, but I they have changed their position on a number of issues that uh, I have trouble understanding, including on the carbon tax. Uh, except to think that they're pandering to the conservatives. And so it's hard to know exactly, but I know where our party stands, what we stand for on these issues. Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep pushing in this direction, whether it's on housing, uh, on healthcare, on any other issue. Final question. Uh, the election date is set for October 19th, 2024. Is that still the election date? Or do you think that you could potentially call an election for spring of next year? Yeah, that's the, uh, that is the fixed election date. That's the, the commitment I made to British Columbians. I've talked to a lot of people. And uh, not one of them has said, please uh, call an early election. Uh, and that includes my wife, uh, who is expecting a child in June. Uh, and so um, for, for many, many reasons, uh, not the least of which is uh, we got a lot of work to do as a province. And, uh, and an election is the last priority that people give me when I talk to them. Premier B, I know you have a very busy schedule. I really appreciate you making time for our listeners and coming in studio today. Thank you so much and Merry Christmas to you. You bet, Jess. Thanks very much. We were speaking to Premier David Eby for a couple of segments and uh, lots there. Um, We talked about housing. We talked about carbon tax. uh, We talked about affordability measures potentially uh, in the uh, spring budget. We talked about um, the uh, growth of the BC Conservatives. We talked about a fixed election date if he plans to stick with it. Uh, One of those folks listening was Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry, and he joins us now. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jazz, good interview. I thought it worked out well. There's some interesting things, interesting takeaways. I thought I found him to be very thoughtful in regards to his comments. Uh, first of all, in the housing um, file, uh, he kept saying big swings. I found that interesting. Yeah, interesting use of uh, the language and his response to um, Richard Stewart. Again, and you and I have talked about this before. We're still waiting for some of the nitty-gritty details when it comes to the housing legislation because we're waiting for regulations and both on short-term rental and on the zoning. And he says he's listened to some mayors who have concerns, such as Richard Stewart, when he phoned in the other day when we were on together. Mm -hmm. So I think there's still going to be some leeway out there um, to allow municipalities to bend with the rules, particularly as we go into an election year. I'm not sure the NDP government wants to be picking fights with city councils over zoning powers, which strikes me as an issue that's never been part of a pre-campaign before, but which could go the wrong way from what the government's looking for. And and as you pointed out to EB, this is uh, to the premier, this is going to take a long time to implement a Mm -hmm. lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So why have a political fight, a messy political fight with some of these mayors and councils when at the end of the day you're not going to get any much housing built in a short time frame anyways? Mm -hmm. Now one of the other things that brought up with um, the Premier was Energy Minister Josie Osborne losing that document. Yeah, like Uh, the Christmas present he's getting there. Exactly. (laughs) That was was quite funny. Uh, But he did uh, mention, without getting into specifics, but it looks like they're working towards some sort of measure to address the broader issues in and around affordability for British Columbians for the spring budget. Yeah, he made a point that a number of us made that this is actually not a bad thing to happen to the government, to have a memo release that you're talking about a carbon tax rebate or frozen hydro rates. Why not put that idea in people's heads? And I I think his comments today seem to push that even further along, that something like this is coming either in the budget or pre-budget. And it sounds like he's leaning towards something to do with hydro rates based on his comments to you. So, yeah, and he's confirmed that something's up. Yeah. Um, 
I, I will talk about the conservatives and the rise of the BC conservatives uh, in the polls in a second. Uh, election date, I did ask him about that, and he still maintains it's going to be fall of 2024. But there's going to, I'm going to assume within the party, there will be some um, pressure to go earlier in regards to whatever is happening amongst the BC electorate. The, the BC conservatives are resonating to a certain degree, or at least the messages, maybe it's not the BC conservatives, but the messages, um, there's going to be some within his party going, wait a minute here, let's reassess. Well, there are people. There aren't. I've talked to them. Um, but no one's made that real push yet. And a number of key people in the party made the point to me, what they're looking at, and this is before today's poll came out, which was kind of electrifying, is what's happening to the vote associated with the B.C. Conservatives, which is a fledgling party, hasn't had an impact on B.C. politics for 90 years. Um, nevertheless, whether it's a Pierre Polyev wave, there is a big block of voters have swung to the B.C. Conservatives. The point that made to me, if that starts to grow significantly and it becomes essentially a two-party fight between the NDP and the B.C. Conservatives with the B.C. United right now barely keeping its head above water, uh, that could be problematic were it to drag on for too long. So why not um, move in early, cut it off, early, cut that surge off early by having a spring election? So I think... Today's poll was had the Conservatives with a significant lead over United. Uh, now the second party of choice, still well behind the NDP, you know, tw- uh, um, 44 to 26, and United just 17. But if that 26 turns into 36 in a, in a, a poll a month from now or two months from now, I think the heat will be on EB to pull the plug sooner than later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And certainly uh, Mr. EB uh, expressed uh, uh, concern over uh, the B.C. Conservatives and their core messaging, uh, even uh, linking it to that uh, tractor incident out in the valley. Um, now, to my understanding, John Rustad, the leader of the B.C. Conservatives, was on Red FM, which is a South Asian radio station based in Surrey. And he was asked this morning, Keith, on, you know, would he consider potentially merging with BC United? Uh, And he was asked by host Harjinder Tind. uh, Take a listen uh, to the question and and the answer from Mr. Rustad. Are you ready for the merger in case it's suggested that the BC United want to merge with the uh, Conservative Party? Is there a possibility? Certainly, um, if the the United Party were to reach out uh, and want to have a discussion about... uh, uh, how we could um, uh, how we could bring things together. Uh, I think that's possible, but the one thing is for certain: with the Conservative Party, we will not compromise on our principles. Will not compromise on the values that that we are running on. Uh, and uh, so, for you to sit down with Gavin Falcon and uh, BC United leaders, then you are willing to sit down, though. Yes, yeah, certainly we're willing to sit down and have a conversation. I've, mm-hmm. I've never said we wouldn't, but. Uh, you know, the challenge will be, of course, uh, they have a very different view of, in terms of how the world works uh, compared to uh, compared to us. Maybe that was a tad premature in regards to questioning, but I mean, could it head there in regards to, uh, you know, and I'm not sure what, what uh, uh, power Mr. Falcon would have in this particular case with Mr. Rustad doing so well in the polls, but you've got to wonder somewhere along the way, there has to be some sort of conversation about a merger. Well, it's a fluid situation, as they say. It's unprecedented. It wasn't unprecedented. We've certainly seen back in the 70s the Socred's Social Credit Party reaching in and grabbing three liberal MLAs and a conservative liberal MLA and put together that coalition. But you heard Russ say we're not going to compromise on our beliefs. So the BC Conservatives have taken a fairly strong anti-Soji position. Uh, really not agreeing with uh, the whole notion of fighting climate change along the lines most countries are fighting. Um, 
being uh, questioning the science of vaccines. Uh, that's not; those are not BC United uh, positions, and never have been. So, for the if that's the, the starting point of a conversation, that means BC United would have to drift even further to the right, mm-hmm. and that would marginalize potentially both of those parties um, against a, still a very strong NDP. But as I say. It's a fluid situation. Uh, there's going to be pressure brought to bear from external parties on both Rustad and Falcon to have a conversation. But Rustad also has a personal stake in this. So this is very much a bit of revenge for him. Falcon kicked them out of the caucus. It was Falcon who did it. There's some animosity there. They, they mock each other on social media. At least members of the caucus mock Rustad and vice versa. So uh, there's a lot of tension and a little broken down relationship. And I'm not sure 10 months is, is long enough to heal this thing. Yeah. So we are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We were speaking to Premier David Eby from 4 to 4.30. Lots of issues discussed from um, affordability issues. We talked about uh, uh, housing legislation. We talked about fixed election dates. Um, all of that. Uh, carbon tax as well. So lots to discuss. Uh, give me a call on the open line. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview and uh, your take on Mr. Eby and what sort of transpired in BC's uh, uh, BC politics these days as the BC uh, Conservative are surging. 604-280-9898, star ninety-eight ninety-eight on your cell phone. Let's go to Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Uh, yeah, I was just calling, and I'm, I'll almost guarantee that the... Are you there? Yes. Oh, I'd almost guarantee that the Conservatives and the United will get together to defeat NDP. I'm sure they both hate him. And Falcon, he's a federal uh, Conservative anyway. It's on his profile, so I can see them just getting together and just trying to defeat NDP. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you would think that would be common sense, but sometimes personalities, uh, you know, they don't see eye to eye, as Keith said. Right, Keith? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, they have to pick up the phone, sort of put their egos aside and say, okay, we, what's the enemy that we're fighting here? Well, so, yeah, so here's, here's a challenge. Okay, let's say they get together. So who's the leader? Is Kevin Falcon actually going to say, John Russett, who I kicked out of caucus, you can be leader? I'd be very surprised if that were to happen. I can't see Rustad saying, you know what, Kevin Falcon, you kicked me out of caucus, therefore you can be leader. So that's that's one of the challenges, one of the many challenges they face. There is not an automatic, obvious leader of a coalition of interest, even though there's going to be, I've heard scenarios from some veteran politicals that say, maybe the answer is for both Kevin Falcon and John Rustad to step down, let someone else lead a merged party. But who would that person be? There's no obvious name out there, Jazz. I don't know if you can think of anybody. Ellis I Ross. I certainly cannot think. Well, yeah. And, you know, and the reason I say that is he ran for leader. He didn't win, but his campaign co-chair was uh, um, uh, John Rustad. Uh, Mr. Ross yeah. is still popular within the BC United Caucus. That, you know? That's a possibility, I suppose. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But that's the type of, you know, deep thinking and outside-the-box thinking that has to occur if these two parties were to get together. Um this is an extraordinary, very similar to what happened in 1991 when the the established party, the BC uh, Social Credit Party, which is sort of the BC United or the old BC Liberal Party equivalent, completely fell apart. And the upstart BC Liberals, which had been nowhere for years, suddenly uh, surged in the polls, almost threatened to win the election from the NDP in 91 out of nowhere, uh, and rebuilt the Free Enterprise Coalition around that party. So we've seen this occur in relatively short time in other years in BC, but these guys are in opposition, uh, not in government. In 91, they were in government uh, when this coalition was, was collapsed and then regrouped again. So, But it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, there's all sorts of outcomes that could occur here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's go to Simon in Vancouver. Hi, Simon. 
Hey, thanks. Hey, thanks a lot for taking my call. Um, I agree that they need to merge, and it's a fascinating discussion, but I think really what needs to happen is everybody that's written a check to BCU needs to phone up who they donated to and say, look, put them together. Um, there's a lot of money in the riding associations. There's no point in splitting the vote. Let Rustad run with it because he's gone from zero to 25 out of nowhere. And, hey, if they lose, then have the leadership race and, and you know, pick the next leader for the next election. But they, they got to do something now, is my opinion. Yeah, Simon, thanks for your call. I mean, I understand where Simon's coming from. I just don't, you know, I, what I don't understand, Keith, and perhaps it's early, you know, this could be just people frustrated and say, oh, I hear conservative. They think Polyev. Like, I don't think anything John Rustad has done, uh, you know, is, is is anything that he's done has actually led to these types of numbers. That's what I find no. shocking. He hasn't no. done anything beyond, you know, some really wild opinions. And that's that's not enough to usually be at 27%. I think it's just confusion out there and think these guys are federal conservatives. Yeah, there are a couple of things. I, don't, I still think... And not enough people know who BC United is, and they're not NDP voters. So who do they vote for? Well, I'm not going to vote NDP because I'm I'm against them. I don't know what BC United is. Well, I know what conservatives. I'll put my hang my hat with them. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is a Pierre Poliev um, wave that seems to be going across the party uh, country in in federal polling. The Conservative Party in BC has a significant lead over the Liberals in the NDP. Uh, I think that's reflecting what we're seeing in in provincial polling. Uh, people may be just parking their vote there. Uh, but it's a very fluid situation. But the challenge really is mostly for BC United. I don't see how they get out of this. Kevin Falcon, the leader, just agreed last week they're having trouble raising money. The brand is, uh, they even put a news release out last week, a, fun, a, a fundraising appeal for what they're calling a rebrand fund. And disclose there's absolutely no money in the fund right now. And if the fund doesn't attract enough money, then their efforts to rebrand may not actually occur because they don't have the money. So they're in a very serious situation. And you're right, Rustad is coasting along in the polls with all he's done at the ledge is he had a very uh, aggressive anti-SOGI day, and then he brought in unvaccinated healthcare workers and demanded to be put back on the job. Those are his two main things. I'm not sure, you know, 40% of the population is with him on those two. No, absolutely. All right, let's go to uh, Ryan in Vancouver. Uh, hi, Ryan. Hi, Jazz. I just wanted to, hi, Jazz. I wanted to point out that uh, the projections I saw for this poll it was two to five seats for the BC United Party, uh, and I think about 15 seats for uh, the Conservatives. Uh, if the referendum had gone through, it'd be more like 16 seats for BC United. I think the right is stronger as two parties than as one. It's like you say, Soji is not something I would compromise on as a federal liberal, and I don't think it's something John Rustad is going to compromise on either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think there was a big error there that uh, two parties are stronger than one, provided you don't have votes for it. Yeah, yeah. An NDP cabinet minister today mused with me that maybe we're headed to a two-party system like they have in other Western provinces. You've got the NDP and the Conservative Party, and the NDP basically takes the liberal side, the really liberal side of the of the political spectrum, and the Conservatives take the center right. And there's no more of this liberal conservative coalition to be created in BC. But that's I, another it, possible scenario. But if that's the case, Keith, I would argue, uh, and and I'm hoping to be proven wrong, there aren't enough voters potential voters from the nope. Conservatives to win a majority government on a consistent basis. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen, but keep an eye on the next federal vote, which will probably occur after the next provincial vote. But if the Conservatives really are big levels in B.C., that means that we're going to win ridings in Metro Vancouver, um, where maybe if they can win at the federal level, maybe Rustad can do it at the provincial. But I agree with you, the odds are, don't favor that scenario. Key, thank you. All right, take care. 
Canada today issued draft regulations for reining in emissions of methane, uh, seeking to limit the release of the uh, potent greenhouse gas from its vast oil and gas infrastructure. The effort adds to a global uh, plan to slash methane emissions and bring Canada in line with the United States, which announced similar rules uh, last week. Of course, this is all. Um, this announcement was made at the United, United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai. It's a further reminder that oil and gas play a significant role in BC and Canada's economy. Today, a not-for-profit advocacy organization, ResourceWorks, announced that uh, former Environment Minister and Attorney General Barry Penner will serve as, a, uh, as chair of a new high-profile campaign focused on energy policy here in BC. Uh, the group will be called the Energy Futures Initiative. Barry Penner, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Jess. Good to have you here. Uh, and, and energy, I think, uh, especially for us here in Metro Vancouver, we don't pay much attention to it and we need to because it drives so much of the conversation and drives so much of our economy as well. So first of all, for you as a former environment minister uh, and attorney general, why is it important for you to be involved with this organization called Energy Futures Initiative? Well, you'll remember, Jess, uh, that I took a leading role in opposing this, the SUMAS 2 energy project mm-hmm. back in the day in the Fraser Valley out of my concern for uh, local air quality and the fine particulate matter that project in Washington State would have produced. And ultimately, uh, we were successful. But I always said we need to find what's the alternative. And I fully supported clean energy alternatives at that time. And I did throughout my tenure as an MLA for 16 years, including more than five years as environment minister, as you'll recall. Uh, so I am worried about climate change. I do support clean energy initiatives, but I've been looking at the numbers and wondering how exactly is the government going to reach their very ambitious targets of a 40% reduction in GHGs in just over six years from now, mm-hmm. uh, when it's been f- 15 years, a full 15 years since I introduced BC's first climate action plan as environment minister in 2007. In those 15 years when we introduced Canada's and North America's first broad-based carbon tax, which, by the way, at that time was revenue neutral. Mm-hmm. So all the in- revenue was uh, returned to the economy through offsetting personal and corporate income taxes to try and keep the money in the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, subsequent administrations have moved away from that. But uh, despite all those policies, the government announced last week we've reduced emissions since 2007 by 4%. But they're saying that in just six years, we're going to go the other 36%. So another way to look at it, Two-thirds of the time's gone by, but we're going to get 90% of the reductions in the remaining time. It's taken, you know, two-thirds of the time to just reduce it by 10%. And so a lot of that's all predicated on a massive transition in our economy to electrification. Mm -hmm. And again, electricity is a phenomenal uh, energy form, but it has to be generated. Yes. So we'll get to that for a second, but I want to talk about the organization specifically. So what will your role be? Is this a question of getting reports done? Is this a question of of, of advocacy? Is this pushing back on environmental groups? What, what, what will be the core role of your organization? We want to bring information to the public's attention that they may not be fully aware of. Uh, for example, many British Columbians would be surprised to know that so far this year, uh, BC has been importing more electricity than we've exported. So on a net basis this year, uh, to the for the most recent statistics put out by Statistics Canada, because mm-hmm. they track cross-border flows, we've uh, imported more electricity, 5,900 gigawatt hours worth, than the Site C Dam, which still isn't finished, despite being announced 13 years ago, uh, would produce in a whole year. So in less than a year, we've imported more electricity than Site C Dam will produce whenever it comes online. And that's just demand driving it? 
Well, we have had a, you know, despite the heavy rain today in the lower mainland, we've actually been below average precipitation in most parts of the province for the last two years. So BC Hydro being mostly hydro-based, as the name suggests, does suffer when we don't have normal amounts of precipitation. And with climate change upon us, uh, you know, the idea of normal is kind of questionable. So this year, BC Hydro's had, and they've acknowledged this in their quarterly reports, they've had less than normal inflows into their reservoirs. So it's not surprising that they're not generating as much electricity as they normally would. Mm -hmm. So they've had to turn to uh, electrons elsewhere. And the thing is, many of those electrons we're importing, for example, from the United States, which is where most of our imports come from, uh, the majority of electricity in the United States is produced by fossil fuel combustion. Coal and natural gas amount to over 60% on average of U.S. electricity production. Uh, I'm curious, Barry, uh, you talked about uh, introducing the, the carbon tax. Uh, do you still think today there is a need for a carbon tax? Now, economists will say you put a price on carbon, it's the right thing to do. I think we're paying about 14.31 cents per litre right now. Uh, that's significant. I think on a Ford F-150, that comes up to about $19 per fill-up for a, for a full tank. Uh, just in carbon tax alone, and it's going up every year until 2030. Uh, it's supposed to change behavior. EV sales are growing, but what I've read, they're not growing as fast as they once did. Uh, and I think it was Ford that was recently saying this. They're cutting back on some of that. So my point is, should the carbon tax, A, just be stopped at where it's at right now, at the level it's at? Or do we need to think rethink the whole thing in regards to the tax itself, because it may not be driving behavior as much as we thought it would. I think it's good to always take a look at how things have worked out after you've announced them. Uh, so it has been 15 years in British Columbia since we've had a broad-based carbon tax, which initially was revenue neutral. And I know many members of the public were skeptical. Believe me, I was out there trying to explain to people. But we had the Auditor General look at it specifically, and uh, it was a he at the time would write reports and say, yes, actually more... Uh, money is being left in the pockets of British Columbians than you're taking through offsetting uh, income tax and other tax reductions. Uh, that has changed. Uh, the current government wants to use at least some of those funds to directly fund government programming, which they think will further help drive down emissions. But that is different than the original concept of revenue neutrality. And we've seen, the, I think, the political limits to the carbon tax could be no more clearly illustrated than the federal government's regional carve-out for the home heating fuel. They felt political pressure there. And even though home heating fuel is a much more carbon intense fuel mm -hmm. than natural gas, it got the break. Uh, they took a three-year pause that they've announced so far in the application of the federal uh, carbon tax. So I think that illustrates that governments can only go as far as the public will let them. And that illustrates, I think, one of the vulnerabilities of the carbon tax. I think academically, it makes a lot of sense. You know, as an economist, I'm not an economist, but it was a minor of mine in, in yeah. the university, uh, something I studied. It makes a lot of sense. You have price signals through the economy. But um, there are many other variations in the fuel price or oil price changes every day based on global events. And so you're not necessarily sending a consistent price signal. Even mm -hmm. with the carbon tax, price could still drop due to world events uh, on, for, on the oil market. So 
I think there are some practical difficulties with the theory. Why do we need your organization? Uh, There is resource work itself. I think the LNG industry speaks for itself. You have the First Nations LNG Alliance. You have, um, uh, you know, organizations, many organizations out of Alberta, uh, one would argue. On top of that, you have uh, the TMX pipeline over budget, but it's getting built. You have uh, a natural gas pipeline, uh, Complete, almost complete, really. I mean, they're working on the plant now, but we're going to be shipping LNG, liquefied natural gas, probably by 2025. So the two big pipelines that needed to be built for the industry are done. So what are you advocating for today and now then? Well, first of all, you mentioned ResourceWorks. This is an offshoot of ResourceWorks, so it's a ResourceWorks initiative. Uh, ResourceWorks, if you look at their history, they've been around for over 10 years, uh, led by Stuart Muir, uh, former senior editor at the Vancouver Sun who believes in getting information out to British Columbians. Bring out the facts in a nonpartisan, unbiased way and let people have an informed discussion. And so uh, I was talking to him after meeting him at a uh, conference this summer in July that was specifically talking about decarbonization efforts. And we were asking each other, like, exactly how do these numbers add up, especially in British Columbia, with a focus on electrifying just about everything? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where are we going to get that electricity from? And I've had a long-standing interest, as I mentioned at the beginning, mm-hmm. about electri- electricity sources and what our options are. So we're not married to any one particular technology. We're not representing a particular pipeline project at all. We're looking at the whole energy landscape, BC's environment, and our economy, and how do we get the best outcomes. And we want to bring forward policy ideas for the provincial government by the uh, throne speech, mm-hmm. and we'll continue to work on that. But we want to hear from British Columbians about their ideas as well. So we've launched a website. Uh, there's a social media campaign. And uh, we really want to bring to people's attention some of the basic facts that they might not be aware of about how important energy is to our economy. You're speaking to the chair of the Energy Futures Initiative. That is Barry Penner, former Environment Minister and former Attorney General of British Columbia, talking about uh, providing fact-based information around energy policy here uh, in our province. And of course, energy and energy development always a polarizing issue uh, in this province. It has been for, well, decades. Uh, but I did want to bring him in because these are real, this is a really important conversation we need to be having, uh, whether it's um, uh, LNG, whether it's uh, pipelines, and moving forward and looking forward to what is our next energy source uh, if after post-site uh, C. Um, is it going to be wind? Is it going to be solar? Is it going to be hydrogen? Uh, I, th- that, that conversation is ongoing, and it's important that we have him here today and hopefully have him in here uh, for many other episodes on, on this issue. But let's go to the open line. I'd love to get your thoughts on the issue of British Columbia's energy future. Uh, let's go to Scott in Vancouver. Hi, Scott. Hello, uh, Barry, good to hear from you. Um, I'm wondering why uh, the uh, nuclear option is always completely off the table in, uh, in British Columbia. I mean, uh, you know, 90% of France's power is, is uh, nuclear. Uh, Ontario, Alberta, the East Coast are looking at many uh, uh, nuclear reactors. But in British Columbia, it's like we, you know, we're blind. Scott, thank you for your call. So the question is, why is nuclear always off the table in British Columbia, Barry? Well, uh, I'm a lawyer, and speaking as a lawyer, uh, I can tell you that there's a statute on the books in British Columbia that the legislature passed, I think it was when social credit was still in government, uh, prohibiting uh, nuclear uh, power as well as uranium mining uh, on the books in British Columbia. So 
the legal answer is the legislature has made it illegal. Of course, legislatures can undo what they've done um, normally uh, if there's a majority willing to do that uh, in terms of members of the legislature. Um, it, the other thing is that in British Columbia, we've been blessed by having a range of other alternatives. And so traditionally, that's been large-scale hydroelectric. Uh, but that's done now with Site C. I think this is this, it can be argued Site C is our last large-scale hydroelectric dam in this And province. again, legally, it is. So when uh, then-Premier Campbell announced the government was going to go ahead with the Site C dam back in 2010, so 13 years ago, and it's still not finished, by the way, um, at the same time, the government and the legislature passed uh, an amendment to, and I forget which act, but it prohibits any more large-scale dams on BC rivers. Now, again, the legislature could change that if we're in an energy crisis. Uh, they could undo that. But at the moment, uh, Jazz, you're entirely correct. The last major dam that's anticipated is Site C, although the original engineers that designed the WAC Bennett Dam, which is upstream of Site mm-hmm. C, envisioned five sites. So site I don't A know. Yeah. is WAC. Yeah. Peace Canyon was built in about 1980. That's site B. Site C is nearing completion. And conceivably, from an engineering perspective, they thought they could do two more before the Peace River hits the Alberta border. But right now, that's off the table. Yeah, politically, it'd be very difficult to do. I'm going to get you to put on your headphones there. Let's go to uh, Glenn and Langley. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, um, my understanding of the... Uh, of the sale of electricity and purchase of electricity from the United States is also driven by the fact that hydropower you can simply shut off and turn back on, whereas a thermal generating plant, you've got to keep the water hot so you're, uh, you're burning fossil fuels whether you're using the electricity or not. So we buy surplus electricity from the states when it's cheap and sell it into the states when it's expensive. In fact, my understanding is that Site C is primarily being developed to sell power into the United States. Thanks for your um, call, Glenn. I appreciate that. Uh, your thoughts on that, Barry? Yeah, you're uh, you are largely correct. Um, the uh, especially coal-fired power plants are different, uh, difficult to ramp down and then start up in a timely fashion, and so they tend to run 24 hours a day. And of course, at nighttime, uh, energy demand or electricity demand is reduced. So traditionally, BC Hydro has imported that power and then sold back. Uh, what's different this year is that on a net basis. We're importing more than I think we ever have, according to Statistics Canada. Uh, and there was a, an article covering that in the Vancouver Sun about a month ago, but again, didn't get a whole lot of attention. Um, and this is indicative of what happens when you have a large hydro-based system and you have a multi-year drought. And if we're into an era of climate change, uh, we may not be able to count on the patterns of the past. You know, what was normal may not be normal in the future. So just, just it, it does bear keeping in mind to maybe diversify your electricity sources as we are. We have some wind power projects now, and there are people proposing solar power as well. Well, 2024 is going to be very interesting with TMX, with uh, natural gas pipelines, and the broader conversation around wind and solar and hydrogen. And we're hoping to do a series on this once the next million series is over, uh, focusing on sort of our energy needs uh, here in uh, uh, British Columbia. Uh, Barry, look forward to having you on the show uh, because I think it's such a very important uh, issue uh, in the months and years ahead. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.